Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Friday, December 8th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm speaking today with U.S. Bureau Chief Jacob Magid and political correspondent Tal Schneider. Hi. Hello. Good morning to you both. Hi. Good morning, Jessica. Hey, Jessica. Hey, Tal. Hey. It is day 63 of the war. Two reserve soldiers were killed Thursday while fighting in Gaza, raising the military death toll since Israel's ground offensive began in late October to 91. Families of Israeli hostages held a candlelighting ceremony in Tel Aviv's Hostages Square Thursday night for the first night of Hanukkah during a rally calling for the release of their loved ones with 138 hostages still held captive in Gaza. Hanukkiot were also lit by troops operating in Gaza, where Major General Yaron Finkelman, head of the Southern Command, told the soldiers they are, quote, modern-day Maccabees, end quote. We'll talk about former Chief of Staff Gadi Eisenkot, whose reserve soldier's son was killed in Gaza this week on Thursday. We'll also discuss comments made by U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor John Feiner about Gaza, about the fighting in Gaza, uh, what PA President Mahmoud Abbas thinks about Hamas, really, and Vietnam-era bulletproof vests in the IDF. All of that after a quick break. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Okay, Tal. Gaidi Eisenkot, former IDF chief of staff, now a member of Benny Gantz's National Unity Party and an observer on the War Cabinet, was in the midst of touring the IDF Southern Command when he got the news that his son had been gravely injured by a bomb exploding in a tunnel shaft in northern Gaza. The funeral is today. Tell us what you can about this. Right, Jessica. So uh, this happened yesterday. Um, Gal Eisenkot, uh, a master sergeant, uh, age 25, he was a part of um, a commando unit called um, um, the 551 Brigade. Um, this is a reservist unit uh, to which uh, many commando units are, uh, you know, they're serving under that in, in, in the reserve duty. He is from Ercelia, he's just 25, uh, the youngest of his uh, five uh, kids. And he was killed uh, on a day where another soldier named David uh, Deitch, uh, 34, also from reserve was killed. Um, we have to say, this is obviously not just Gal Eisenkot. Every day we have between two and three, sometimes four 
uh, both from mandatory service officers and reservists uh, from all over the military, infantry or um, or um, tanks um, being killed in Gaza, north and south. But this case was obviously taking um, headlines uh, basically because Eisenkot is also a former chief IDF and a member of this very narrow cabinet that they set up two months ago, cabinet that has only five ministers, Gantz, Eisenkot, Netanyahu, Dermer, and um, obviously the defense minister. So this is his father, is one of the five people who make the decision on minute-by-minute minute, um, military decisions and with his military background. The elder Eisenkot was actually visiting on the time of this um, attack, he was visiting the Southern Command alongside the border, together with the with former Defense Minister Guns. He was actually less than a mile away from the event. He had to, you know, someone had to pull him out from the meeting. Um, um, the uh, Chief of Staff of the Southern Command uh, General had to pull him out tell him that his son was severely injured and he was on his way to a nearby hospital and then tell him that the doctors were not able to save his life. And then Gadi had to drive back to Herzliya about an hour to be the person who bring this, um, you know, this the, the announcement to his wife, Hannah. And, um, you know, um, there's one more thing I want to say about that. Uh, Gadi Eisenkot was in the opposition until, you know, two months ago. Together with Gantz, they objected every type of political decision Netanyahu made with respect to the judicial overhaul. During August, when there were high alerts on any type of uh, military attack on Israel, Gadi Eisenkot was one of the people who were trying you know, dramatically to convince the prime minister to pull back from the legislation because they knew from inside the military about the threats. And he talked to Netanyahu personally and he was trying to convince him to just stop all of the legislation and it didn't work. So he entered into this government in two months ago when the war uh, began knowing that this attack should have been prevented and maybe could have been prevented in a way when I mean, we don't know that for sure. Obviously, I'm, 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 tr I'm trying to be very careful here. But I think that I think that he is probably, you know, very upset and very troubled even before. before. I mean, he was very upset and troubled during August. So this day is a devastating day for the Eisenkot family. We also need to mention that Gadi Eisenkot is a rare politician. He's very humble and he's not, you know, those media type people who sits in the studios 24-7. He's more of a behind the scene kind of, of politicians. You don't hear him that much and he is always trying to pull his influence on things behind the scene. And um, yep. Very sad day for everybody in Israel. As I, and as I said, we do have you know two more soldiers. By the way, this morning Friday, who were killed in Gaza Strip from other other units. So uh, Tal, didn't he also say at the start of the war that he was going to approach it as if he 
had a son fighting on the front lines and a daughter who had been abducted. And of course, and then he would follow up and say, I do have a son who is fighting in Gaza. His daughter, of course, had he did not have a child who had been abducted, but he was going to sort of approach, he was going to take his approach to the military campaign, to the war, as if he was that kind of parent, a parent with a child in the front lines and a child who had been abducted. From what we know right now in, in the cabinet and in the government, by the way, and in the Knesset, you have many ministers and member of the Knesset who have sons, sometimes daughters, but mostly sons in arms way serving Israel, for example. And I'm, and I'm telling you this because the president himself has revealed that his youngest son is also serving in um, this commander unit in Gaza as we speak right now. And we are talking about, you know, I don't want to name others because they, they did not come forward and say it, but the president actually said, and uh, President Herzog, of course, uh, he has three sons. The, the youngest is, is in, uh, is in um, military service as we speak. But, you know, I know for a fact several ministers... Um, member of the Knesset, high-ranking people are in arms way. It's definitely hard for everyone. So you see Israel society bottom-up or up-bottom. Everybody are recruited. Right. Okay, sticking with the Southern Command, sticking with uh, obviously what's taking place in Gaza. Jacob, U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer wants Israel, said this yesterday, wants Israel to learn and apply lessons from its fighting in northern Gaza to its current fighting in the south of Gaza. What is the overall message here? What do we really what do we really take from this? Yes, so this is a message that they've been saying for quite a quite a few weeks at this point. Um, I think the difference in John Finer's appearance at the Aspirin Security Forum was that he specifically said that it felt that the U.S. feels that Israel did not take steps in certain cases in the north to protect civilians, um, and of course, again, wants to to learn lessons. I think some of the more interesting things that Finer did talk about, though, were one, for example, that he said that. He was asked whether the U.S. has imposed some sort of deadline on Israel's military operation. He said, no, we haven't. And that was a very explicit no, um, saying it's not our role, um, it's not how we operate, and it's not even our conflict. So we don't have the really the right or the, 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 the ability to do that. We do have influence, John Finer said, this is the Deputy National Security Advisor, and we're pushing it to... pushing to try to see some sort of limitation in civilian casualties. He then went on to, he was asked about the, the military objectives that Israel has, and he referred to the one that Netanyahu talks about in terms of Hamas can no longer rule Gaza and can no longer pose a threat to Israel. And he says those are two very legitimate um, um, military objectives. And given that Hamas still poses a threat, we do not call for a ceasefire um, because of that, that we recognize that that threat needs to be taken out, and therefore we want to see Israel uh, achieve its military objectives, albeit within international law. Then um, he was pushed about the basically the, the large number of civilian casualties that we've been seeing in Gaza. Even the IDF a couple of days ago mentioned that it's a two-to-one ratio of, of civilians to combatants killed, which is a, a quite a high number, which, and, and actually, in terms of the total, is relatively close to what the health ministry in Gaza, run by Hamas, has been saying in terms of the number. They don't do a split in terms of civilian ca- casualties and, and, and combatants, but it's worth noting that moving forward. 
and he was asked about this is, is this is this ratio okay in your mind and john finer said basically of course every civilian casualty is a tragedy but when we're talking about proportionality in under international law it's not really judged based off of just the ratio or the numbers alone it's about circumstances and that's what we're focusing on so in the in the cases where we do find that there were examples where israel told palestinians to flee to areas that were ultimately bombed that we are taking we're taking up th- those issues with israel we're bring, we're raising it at, at, in real time and we're kind of taking a more pinpointed approach as opposed to this more holistic one that tries to look at things based off of numbers when things are a lot more complicated the other last couple interesting things that he did mention were that President Biden has put more pressure on Israel regarding settler violence than any other predecessor in the White House. And he pointed to the the visa bans that were announced earlier this week against dozens of settlers, basically preventing them from, from traveling to the U.S. And then he was asked about the PA, which um, basically the question was, does the U.S. see President Abbas as part of this revitalized Palestinian Authority? that the U.S. says is needed to return to Gaza. And he basically said there's a window for that to be possible, that we recognize that the PA is imperfect and that there's a lot of reforms that need to be to be um, implemented, including possibly elections, but not necessarily as it required for Abbas to go. There's a, there's a lot of appreciation in Washington, Feiner says, for the, the security cooperation that the, the PA security forces are maintaining with the IDF and that have been able to keep the West Bank at bay relatively so over the since the war has begun and and it does this despite the massive unpopularity of of this this cooperation within the within the Palestinian public that who doesn't want to see it as Israel's grip on the West Bank is tightened and as the the amount of civilian casualties in Gaza continues to grow and yet the PA is still working with Israel so I think Feiner makes a point of giving the PA credit where it's due yeah, no, that's an interesting point because how Abbas is referring to Hamas as we move past the two-month mark of this war. So, okay, so let's take a break over here, and then when, when we're back, you'll uh, inform us about what Abbas has been saying about Hamas since October 7th. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, so 
Let's take it from there, Jacob. As we've had on our pages, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has essentially been condemning Hamas in every call and meeting, as you wrote in your piece, but does not do so publicly. Yet a top advisor said to you that, in fact, he is condemning Hamas privately. So explain that to us. How does that break down? So I met with Palestinian Authority Presidential Advisor Mahmoud Habash in Ramallah a couple days ago, and I asked him about the criticism that the Palestinian Authority has been getting over its lack of clear condemnation of what happened on October 7th. Basically, Mahmoud Abbas issued a statement a couple days afterwards saying that the PA rejects the targeting of all civilians, but there's no real, there's no mention of Hamas, nothing about really specifically October 7th. And I asked him to explain kind of the position of what the PA's thinking is, and, and Mahmoud Habash, a very close advisor to Abbas, he took a couple calls from him during the meeting as we were speaking, basically said that if Israel hadn't launched its, what he said, the aggression on Gaza the day, the, the, within hours after the attack, if the, the, that aggression wasn't ongoing, then we would be in a different place and we would be able to, to be publicly condemning what Hamas did and, and, and continues to do. But at, since the rockets are still, since the bombs are still falling in Gaza, you can't expect us, given the massive amount of civilian casualties, the humanitarian crisis, um, worst that we've ever seen really in Gaza to, to be, to be publicly condemning Hamas and uh, essentially what he feels like basically taking sides. Uh, against the Palestinian people who are suffering in Gaza. Now, he said, he did clarify, though, that, that in, uh, Mahmoud Abbas has held over 70 calls with world leaders and meetings with world leaders, and in every single one of them, he says that he's, he's condemned the attack. He insists that this is not something that, that really advances the Palestinian cause anyway, that the Palestinian Authority, unlike Hamas, uh, opposes violence and is the actual representative of the Palestinian people. And that is something that um, world leaders recognize and aren't pushing any longer the PA to really condemn publicly because they recognize the the limitations of, of the politically of of where of how much it can really can really do. So what does that really accomplish politically? Yeah, I think um, the PA right now is focused on trying to, as the U.S. says, be part of the day after program and and trying to hopefully return to Gaza. After after the war, it, it, it was kind of booted out by Hamas in 2007 after it lost elections a couple of years earlier. And it's the, there's this effort that is needed to revitalize, rehabilitate, whatever you want to, whatever word the U.S. or the PA is using. But basically, the Habash did point out that given even the U.S. finer mentioned how it's the PA is maintaining security control in the West Bank is proof that it can do this in Gaza, too. There might need to be a temporary period when the PA um, is not yet ready, and in this period, the PA will accept, Habash says, possibly Arab forces or international forces to help um, come into Gaza and manage the security for this short period until the PA is ready. But the condition for that PA approval for international forces to come in is 100% that it has to be part of a broader diplomatic solution, a two-state solution, that it can't just be this band-aid security solution that doesn't address the political problem. And this is something that Habash is very clear about, and I think even the PA has been as well, that they don't want to be coming in on an Israeli tank. Israel has to withdraw completely from Gaza before any other forces, be it international or the PA, are going to be willing to come in and, and do Israel's work afterwards to maintain security. Now, obviously, this is something that is, the Netanyahu is completely rejected, saying that Israel is going to have to maintain overall security control in Gaza after 
from basically from the river to the sea after after the war is over that they can't be trusted in international hands it definitely can't be trusted in PA hands that's been a real political point that Netanyahu has been making for, for, for weeks now we'll have to see how much of that is just posturing given that Netanyahu has made other kind of more lots of comments gusto regarding humanitarian aid not being allowed in that he's walked back regarding fuel not being allowed in that he's walk, walked back um, and several other other steps that he's taken despite initially saying he wouldn't right okay right a lot remains to be seen tal so at the start of the war uh, a little more than eight weeks ago we had there were donations pouring in from all over the world for bulletproof for ceramic vests there was a lot of different conversation going on that there were not enough and then not enough for reserve duty soldiers or for certain soldiers in certain units. And then you discovered that some soldiers um, have bulletproof vests that were made in 1963 in the U.S. for the Vietnam War. So what gives? Yeah, right, Jessica. Um, this story is a, a weird, funny, but also a little bit sad one. Uh, as as you correctly sta- said, um, in the military, said to those people who were trying to raise lots of funds and bring in uh, airplanes full with uh, with uh, bulletproof vests, they told them, enough is enough. We are taking care of this. The military, Israel's military, is the one that will bring those vests and will will send them to the people. No one will get go into Gaza without a ceramic modern vest. Okay, so this may be true, uh, but we do know of uh, a, a military unit, um, a reservist combative unit. I don't think they are, are into Gaza. They're not going into Gaza, but as you know, we have additional uh, front lines in Lebanon and in a semi-front line in, in Syria, and we do have lots of reservist uh, soldiers that are um, sent across the borders to, even if they're not entering beyond the border, they're still they're still under attack uh, in on Israel's land. So one of them uh, was recruited to the to the reserve, opened this um, box, which is was it was not a bo- an old box, but the box was just you know regular box. And when he pulled out this vest, there was a note attached to it, and you can you can see the the photos of the notes and and these historical you know um, papers attached to the vest on our website. It's uh it's both on Zman Israel and 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 on Times of Israel, and one of those um, you know vests had this note attached to it that said this is from coming from the Department of U.S. Army in Natick, Massachusetts. And the date on the note was August 22, 1963. It's coming from the from the U.S. Uh, Army laboratories in, in Natick. And on the note, there was uh, this, um, you know, sort of a explanation how to use it. When uh, when a shell bursts nearby, your body armor is no value if it is lying idly by instead being uh, worn. When wearing your armor vest with the field uniforms, wear it over the field shirt or coat or under additional layers. Uh, you can see the notes. It's and the notes, as I said, it's 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 it, it is coming from the Vietnam War, and you know Jessica. Israel's chief IDF, Herzi Alevi, was born on 1967. So this bulletproof vest was manufactured 
in the eastern coast of the United States before 1963, Very weird. Uh, I think Israel's unit should get updated equipment and use ceramic vests, which are the modern equipment. And um, if they don't have ceramic vests, they need to have other bulletproof that are at least a couple of years, um, you know, to 10 years in time and not something coming from 60 years ago. I mean, bullets have changed The way they do the the war is has changed. It's just, you know, it doesn't make sense. No, not really. Okay. On that note, thanks, Tal, for being on today's Daily Briefing. It's been good to see you. Thank you, Jessica. In the meantime, thank you, listeners, for being here for the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. We will be back tomorrow. This episode was produced by the Podwaves. Please feel free to write us at podcast.timesofisrael.com if you have any comments. And until next time, take care and Shabbat Shalom.